Amen. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, if, if you are unaware, uh, this week uh, was, a, was a pretty momentous uh, a week in the life of Buffalo City Church. Uh, as of last Sunday, the First Baptist Church of Jamestown, North Dakota, voted to merge into Buffalo City Church. So there's a handful of new names and faces that you can make yourself acquainted with this morning. And we are so grateful for what God is doing in the life of, of, of our church and growing and expanding. And, and, and we want to give God the glory and the praise this morning. So if you're here this morning and you're from the, 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 the First Baptist Church and you're joining us, please, please make yourself available to those around you. Um, Buffalo City Church, we want to welcome you in. We want to honor you. We want to we give, uh, give you honor as those who have faithfully served the Jamestown community with the gospel for decades and decades and decades. It is a great privilege for us to have you in our midst this morning, and we look forward to integrating together and to, to becoming one church. It's, it's an exciting, exciting time uh, in the life of our, of our congregation. Now, if you're looking for more details about it, you can find those. You can come talk to me or talk to someone around you, and we'd, we'd be happy to give you more details. But this morning, we're here to go to God's Word. We're here to hear from the Lord, and, and we know that He speaks to us uh, through His Word. And so that's where we want to go, and that's where we want to focus our time and our energy this morning as those who have been adopted in the family of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, we're in 1 Corinthians. If this is your first time with us, we've been trekking through 1 Corinthians, uh, and we are this morning in chapter 6, and we're going to bite off the whole chapter this morning. So we're going to read verses 1 through 20 here in a moment. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful in back. Kellen's holding them. Um, he'd be happy to bring one to you if you want to put your hand in the air. It's important to have the words of God in front of us as we look here because I want you to see that I'm not making these things up, but, uh, but that they're actually here and they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they come to us through his servant, Paul. So I'm going to read this for us first. Well, all of chapter 6, the 20 verses that constitute chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the, un before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But if you yourselves wrong and defraud, even you, even your own brothers, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, 
but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When we get to chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to continue addressing things that have come up in the life of the, of the Corinthian church. And last week we saw in chapter 5 a difficult but a necessary idea related to, related to church discipline. Now Paul saw that there was unrepentant sin happening in the life of the, of the Corinthian church and so he prescribed action against it in the form of church discipline, removing the leaven that leavened or was, in jap- or was threatening to leaven the whole lump. And we saw that we are as a takeaway, to live in light of Christ's sacrifice. We are to live in light of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And the good news is for us that Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, came to earth and died the death that we deserved for our sin to bring us back into right standing with God. And now this is absolutely important because what it allows for us is to be free from sin, to flee from sin. Even as our text says this morning, Paul commands the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. Uh, So we are to be free from sin, we are to flee from sin, and we are to be holy, we are to be set apart from sin. And now when we get to chapter 6 this week, we're going to see, we're going to hop into a text with a couple of different issues that Paul addresses. Believers taking legal action in the form of lawsuits against one another and that idea of sexual immorality. At first glance, I think these things seem unrelated, but I think that they are, are tied together. There is, a, there is an arc, there is an argument that Paul is making for these things to be tied together and an important thing that, that the Corinthian church needs to, needs to, must absolutely apply in their lives. And it is exactly the same problem that we have often in our culture. Much of our decision-making process, as those outside the church and those inside the church, oftentimes our decision-making process is based on a premise that our culture has put before us time and time again. If it's not hurting anyone else, then I'm free to do that thing. If it's not hurting anyone else, then I'm free to do that thing. But this is a very narrow idea. And Paul is arguing that the actions of the Corinthians have ripple out effects far beyond what they can see in the immediate. He's arguing that every action taken against another believer or even sinful activity in private affects the body, not just your own, but the body of Christ, the church. And so all of chapter 6 can be seen as this continuous argument. That starts here. 
Surrender your rights. Surrender your rights. Be free from sin because it all affects, it all has ripple out effects on the body of Christ. Now we are conditioned as people because we're sinful and because our culture dictates this to us, we are conditioned to demand our rights first. We're conditioned and inclined because of sin to look out for one person and that's oftentimes just me. Our personal pleasures and comfort are often so elevated that they, they become the primary a driving force behind many of life's major decisions. And so the call then for the Corinthians was clear. Surrender your rights. Relinquish your rights. Deny yourself. Give it up. Those who are unwilling to do so Those ones are demonstrating that their treasure is not Christ, but something much more temporary. So we have these two cases here. We're going to take them one in the same. The lawsuits against believers and the sexual immorality that Paul addresses in verses 12 through 20. But the first is really to surrender your rights externally. And then we see later this argument to surrender your rights internally. But Paul begins here, surrender your rights externally externally, he says. Look with me at verses 1 through 8, just 1 through 8. Paul catches wind of these believers taking legal action against other believers. Now, now something that should be understood because of what we saw last week in chapter 5, we saw that people were sinning uh, in, in an unrepentant manner. They were doing so in such a way that that was uh, offensive, and, and they were doing it against one another. Now, something should be understood in this section of text because when we see it, we say, one of you has a grievance against a brother who does not dare to go to law before unrighteous instead of the saints. Does he dare to go to law before unrighteous instead of the saints? These, these are not criminal cases such as murder or, or theft, but these are grievances, small things that were taking place in the life of the church that were be taken before the unrighteous. They were minor matters. Not criminal things. And I think Paul uses this word grievance here very intentionally. He wants to demonstrate to to the Corinthian church that these are simply grievances. These are lawsuits for minor things. But they were disrupting the life of the church. And so Paul calls it out. And Paul is not saying that courts should not be made use of when crimes are present but that people shouldn't be suing each other willy-nilly over whatever perceived problem they might have with another in the church. So then Paul continues to build his argument. Look at verse 2 with me. He writes, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And remember, the Corinthians readily boasted in their wisdom, and not in a godly sense. And now, Paul uses this word judge here in a specific sense. He thrusts the idea on the saints, those who are in Christ will rule over the world and angels and new creation. That's what he says. They will judge, but the sense is they will rule over the world and angels and new creation. And they will be restored to their original purpose. They will be restored to exercise dominion over all of creation, which God commanded Adam to do in the garden. So he's saying, don't you know that all of creation is going to be subject to you? And so 
you then need to understand how to take care of these trivial cases in your midst. Paul argues from what the Corinthians are destined to do down to what they are currently doing. If you are set apart, like Jesus, to rule over everything, why can't you make simple decisions and restore harmony in your midst? Remember, the Corinthians readily boasted in their wisdom, in a worldly sense. And so Paul takes a shot at them. Look at, verses, look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? You say you're wise, but you're outsourcing your problem. You're outsourcing it to people who don't even have the same baseline as you, to unbelievers. It would be better for the Corinthians to suffer wrong. And this is where he ends this section of text. It would be better for you to suffer wrong or to, to be defrauded. But instead, by taking this petty legal action against one another, they were wronging and defrauding. Now, now there's one more problem here. Uh, this legal action, and this is pretty well documented. Greco-Roman courts would usually favor the wealthy or those with status when a, when a lawsuit was brought before them. And so this had potential to create an additional division in the church, one that was centered around socioeconomic class, how much money you had, how much status you had. And if you have no status in society, and those who have status in society are suing you in the church, you think you're going to stick around? Probably not. And here's yet another place where divisions in the church were cropping up for the Corinthians. They were creating divisions not only amongst who they were following. I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They weren't only drawing those divisions. They were also drawing divisions based on socioeconomic class. Because many demanded rights instead of relinquishing them. So, so we're here this morning, and you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not going to sue anyone here. Good, that's great, thank you. <laughs> but, but let's explore this idea a bit more. and Let's get under the surface, really, what's going on at the heart level. Our problem may not be so blatant. For us here this morning, it's probably a little bit more internalized. Have you ever walked into church and been insulted by something that was said or another person or what they did from the front, or maybe someone who greeted you at the door. You're not going to sue someone for that. But are you holding it against that person? Have we created internal files of grievances we have with others and stored them away? And sometimes it feels good to go to court with that file and to open it up and air it out with other people. Not in, a, not in a literal sense, but in a figurative one. To open up that file of grievances you have with another person and tell it to someone else. Are we pu pulling open that file with others, airing those grievances? So-and-so did such-and-such. And on your home, on your way home today with 
your spouse? Can you believe what this or that person said or did? And it might be feel good to open up that file and share some of those things with others. But friends, this is gossip and this is slander. People ask, what is too much? What is the line in gossip? We're not here to toe the line. It's entirely the wrong question to be asking. We're not here to toe the line. We're not pulling out the magnifying glass and examining the exact spot where we move from casual conversation into gossip. Rather, we should ask the questions, how can, how can I pursue godly maturity in the way I think about and talk to and engage with others? How can I relinquish or surrender my rights? It's, it's not your right never to be offended. It's not your right to demand what others say or do. It's not your right to demand that others say or do things the exact way that you think that they should be done. Unity was a problem for the church in Corinth. And now we have some really practical reasons why. They're suing the pants off each other over small, inconsequential things. So the question for us is, would we become the judge and jury of our brothers and sisters in the local church? Will we try them in a court of our own making? Or will we pursue unity? If you're hurt by something someone says or does, will you humbly approach them and seek someone out in the church to mediate a conversation if necessary? And if you are approached, will you humbly listen? Make no mistakes. These are small things that people were suing one another over, but the stakes are really high. What's a little bit of harbored grievance, you say? There is no such thing as a little bit, Paul says. Why? Because bottling these things up causes bitterness and resentment and it bubbles over in complaining and gossip and slander. And here's the big picture. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. This is the big picture. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You think suing others looks like love to the world? Do you think gossiping about others and slandering others looks like love to the world? The world will know us as disciples by our love for one another. And that's why the stakes are so high. Will people walk into Buffalo City Church and sense a love that we have for one another? Or will they walk in and sense bitterness and resentment and experience gossip and slander? If you have a grievance against another, don't continue to hold it in. Exhibit godly wisdom and be willing to approach another. Or may do or say something that hurts you, approach them. Or exhibit godly wisdom and bring others who are wise into the fold and allow for healthy mediation to occur. Or exhibit godly wisdom by not allowing others to continue gossiping. Friends, the stakes are too high. Will the world look in and decide that it wants nothing to do with the church, with our expression of the local church, 
because people can't rein in their personal preferences and surrender their rights? Or will the world look in and see a group of people marked by love for one another? So that's the first idea here this morning. Surrender your rights externally. But then the second idea as we move into verse 9 now is to surrender our rights internally. The second idea really intersects with last week. And look briefly with me. There's a bit this interlude right here that, that Paul writes in verses 9 through 11. Now the verses present present a, the basis for Paul's argument. Look at verse 11 specifically, and he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For, for the Christian, several things have taken place. For the Christian, several things have taken place. And now, now Paul points out three here. He says, we are washed. We are washed. That is, our sins are forgiven. And then he says that we are sanctified. That is, that we are set apart. We are made holy. We are different from the world. We are justified. That means we have been given the righteousness of Christ. He obeyed. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed his heavenly father perfectly so that now we in him have right standing before God. That's what these three things mean. We are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified. Forgiven, made holy, and, and made right with God. And this is our position. If you are a Christian, this is who you are. These things are absolutely true of you. Not if your parents are Christians. Not if you walked an aisle or responded to an altar call. But if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you repented or turned from your sin, if that is true of you, then you are washed, sanctified, and justified before God. And we have to get that down. We have to rehearse that truth. This is basic truth that drives the impact of the gospel in our lives beyond the surface. And these are ideas that Paul simply wants to remind the Corinthians of right in the middle of these two things that he's addressing. Because of their position as washed, sanctified, and justified, he reminds them of what rightly applying those things look like. And that reminder is this, that we are free from sin. We are able to live lives that are free from sin. Paul lists a whole host of sins in verse 9, and he says, these are the ones who will not inherit the kingdom. And why does he say that? Because continuing in and indulging in these unrepentant sins is an indication that the washing and the sanctifying and the justifying has not yet taken place. And so Paul goes after a specific sin in verses 12 through 21. And this is where we get into this idea of surrendering our rights internally. He goes after the idea of sexual immorality. And so he begins constructing another argument. He continues building this new argument. Look at verse 12. He writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, now verse 12, in those first few words that we see translated in our ESV Bibles, all things are lawful for me, 
Uh, this is actually a common, that you see him in quotes there, this is actually a common Corinthian phrase that would be used pretty regularly. And a, and a pretty rough translation would say, I have the right to do anything. And they would use this as sort of a, sort of a, a way to justify any behavior that they might want to engage in. And I mean, the Rolling Stones saying pretty much the same thing. I'm free to do what I want, right? I'm free to do what I want any old time. You know that song, right? It's not like every other commercial, every other big banking commercial. I'm not sure why it's banking. But I'm free to do what I want, maybe because of free checking? I don't know. So, and then, and then, but then later it says, so love me, hold me, love me, hold me. I'm free to any old time to get what I want. So it's probably our slogan too. <laughs> the Rolling Stones are singing it and it's on TV all the time. I have the right to do anything. For the Corinthians, this phrase would be used to justify sexual immorality. And so Paul adds a couple of qualifiers. Look, look, look. But not all things are helpful. And then the second time, but I will not be dominated or enslaved by anything. So Paul is saying, We've said many times before, freedom isn't the ability to do what we want, but the ability to do what God intended. And what God intends for the Corinthians, and for us, is that we would love one another. Freedom is to be used to be free from sin and therefore demonstrate love for neighbor. Paul continues to build the argument. Look at verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. I think, I think this is best interpreted that we can, what we crave in this life, what we think will satisfy us, won't be satisfactory to us in the life to come. So the things that we have here and now, the things that we're going to go eat afterwards, you're going to order an eight-ounce steak after 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 church today you're going to go to a restaurant order that eight ounce steak and it's going to satisfy your hunger and you're going to feel pretty good and then you're going to walk out of it and then that hunger is going to come back later tonight probably around 4 30 or 5 those are temporary hungers being satisfied and what paul is saying that indulging in anything that you believe will satisfy you ultimately other than jesus christ has no ability to do so Paul says, no, the body is different. Christ's blood bought you and his spirit dwells inside of you. Look at verses 19 and 20 all the way down at the end of the section. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Corinthian mindset said, satisfy your desires. You eat food when it pleases you. So pursue sexual pleasures when it pleases you. The Corinthians were in the same sense. When it came to sex and sexuality, they were struggling with their understanding of rights. Well, I have the right to satisfy my body with food. Why not in this way also? Paul says it at the end of verse 19, though. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And verse 13 is so telling. Verse 12, rather, this slogan, I have the right to do anything. Paul says, relinquish your rights. 
Paul says, surrender them, both externally and internally. Now, this doesn't sound too different than our current situation in 2019. Again, sex and sexuality, incredibly misunderstood. We're going to dive into that, but it's incredibly misguarded, and largely because of what the Corinthians subscribe to. I have the right to do anything. But we as the people of God, as the local church, we have a different standard. And so this is our first point in conclusion. Our first point in conclusion is this. Our standard is love. Our standard is love. Paul, when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he writes this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Look at this. Any other commandment. He pulls four from the ten commandments and then he says, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And our standard isn't then, I have the right to do anything, but our standard is, I have the ability to love. Now, our society says those things aren't mutually exclusive. Our society says those things aren't necessarily at odds with one another. But friends, I think that they are. Our culture says, I love you, and so I promote your right to do whatever you want. But the Bible says, I love you, and so I promote your ability to do what God intended for you. And when that looks like redirecting misguided views of just about anything, our personal pleasures and passions, and on to what God intended, that will probably be labeled by the world as intolerant or narrow. But friends, we're not here to please people, we're here to please God. And showing others how to know God and have right relationship with God and please God is the greatest act of love that we can give to them. showing others how to know God and have right relationship with God and please God is the greatest act of love that we can give to them. Secondly then, in conclusion, Jesus perfectly shows us how to surrender our rights and deny ourselves. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly by loving perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly by loving perfectly. Mocked, beaten, scorned, falsely accused, murdered without cause. And yet his response, forgiveness. He was bearing the weight of the sin of the world for all of time, actively paying for an infinite debt while being spit on and slandered. 
And even before that, this is demonstrated in Christ, perfectly showing us how to surrender our rights and deny ourselves. Jesus existed in an eternity past as the second person of the Trinity. God himself humbled himself, taking on flesh, surrendering his rights. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He says, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to point of death, even death on a cross. Which one of us hasn't demanded our rights when slighted in the most insignificant of ways? Which one of us hasn't refused to deny ourselves even in the simplest of comforts? Christians ask, how do I follow Jesus? The words follower of Jesus can be found in Facebook profiles and email signatures and in wall art. But we ask ourselves, how can I follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? It's easy to say that you're following Jesus, that you're loving like Jesus, but Jesus divined it very simply for us. And I would challenge you this morning to make a serious assessment because it's a simple statement, but it's not at all an easy one. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Where are we, where are we going, Lord? Follow you where? The answer? Into death. A death to self and self-interest. A death to worldly pursuits and pleasures and, and passions. But also into life. Also into resurrection. Into life everlasting. Into eternal joy and complete unending satisfaction. But, but you can't be raised without first being buried. And Paul says... And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. We are bought with a price, Paul says. We are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified by the blood of Jesus and by his perfect love. Not to live what we believe to be our rights, but to live like God intended. Finally then this morning, last thing. Just a question for you. Another self-assessment. What does it look like for you to surrender your rights? Does it mean not holding a grievance against a brother or sister? Does it mean not trying them in some internal court or airing those grievances with others? Friends, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? We must not sacrifice our witness on the altar of what we believe to be our right. Paul will write in just a few chapters. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, you know it well. Verses 4 through 7, he says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This text isn't designed for weddings. This text is designed for the church. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded for the sake of love and for the sake of the church? Why not? I'm not going to let people walk all over me. Fine, good, but be careful of what you define as walking all over you. We tend to exaggerate in those situations. If it is a problem, graciously address the issue with the person and with no one else. Godly wisdom goes to the source and does not back-channel. Our standard friends is love. What will the world look at? What will the world see when it looks in on Buffalo City Church? Will it see those who are marked out by a standard of love or by personal preference? and a demand for rights. Again, what does it look like for you to surrender your lives? We live, we live in an instant gratification culture, and maybe you're here this morning, and you have lived a life that has been sold out to instant gratification, whether it be in, a, in sexual immorality or in any other type of way. Maybe you've put yourself in that position. First thing for you this morning is that Jesus' blood covers those sins. You could be washed, you could be sanctified, you could be justified because of Jesus' work on your behalf. Nothing, there is nothing. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you put your trust in Jesus, those things are washed away from you and cleaned. Now the question is, what's next? How do we step out of these things? How do we step out of the pull that these things have in our hearts? How do we move to look more and more like Jesus? We live in this instant gratification culture and the Corinthians' pursuit of sexual pleasure is not far from us. And we need to be honest with ourselves. We may see things, things are worse out there, but the same war rages in our hearts in the church. Will we seek to satisfy all our hungers and desires or will we deny ourselves understanding that we were bought with a price and that we are not our own? So, a sub-question, what is our highest aim? Comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it the pursuit of our passions or power or status or entertainment or experience? Will we seek to deny ourselves those things? As a Christian, your best life isn't now, it comes later. Our best life doesn't come now, it comes later. This is an urgent call to start living like it. An urgent call to believe that something better is on the horizon. So, now, be generous with your time and money. Be available to others, loving and listening to them, encouraging them concerning ourselves with the spiritual growth and maturity of others and demanding our rights in personal pursuits will put us at odds with others. Instead, surrender our rights, point them to Jesus. <laughs> what good news it is that we have the ability to do any of this. 
What an incredible truth. Not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides through the atoning work of Jesus and the spirit that he provides to us. What a great gift. We're going to sing a new song in a moment. Philip's going to lead us in this song. And the, the first line, I think I'm going to get it right. Hopefully I do. If I don't, I'm sorry. What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. God sent his Son to die, to atone for our sin, so that we might have right relationship with our Father. And then he sent his Spirit to lead us in this life, to convict us of sin, to illumine Scripture, all that God has given to us in his word, to make it apparent and evident to us that this is the greatest truth by which we can live our lives. And so as we go and we're going to sing this song, don't, don't disengage. The sermon's going to be over, but don't disengage. It's cold out. You may be tempted to dig for your keys and turn on your car. Just let the words wash over you. Think about them. Focus on the truth that we're about to proclaim. Your ability to surrender your rights is is not something that's going to come by this conjured effort in you, but because of Christ's work through you. Apart from Christ, we would hold on to them indefinitely. But because we're washed, because we're sanctified, because we're justified, we can surrender them now, because our best life comes later. And our standard is now love. But apart from Christ, you can do nothing. We need to run to him now. Run to him now in our time of need. Let's pray.